Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Onyx. The Onyx Hunt app is your premier GPS hunting app for your phone, for your computer, for your tablet, whatever it is. It is right there, available. You can use it on or offline. Now in, it's been in 2D and now you can do it in three-dimensional. It's got weather data, everything else, plot all your waypoints, anything that you need to scout mountain bucks or anything out west and everywhere in between. So if you head over to onxmaps.com and use the coupon code EMW, you can save yourself 20% off of the app. Elk 101. So Corey Jacobson and Elk 101 have put together the most comprehensive elk hunting learning course available, which is called the University of Elk Hunting. You can go through 17 different modules that tell you everything from beginning to end on how to plan execute and hopefully come home successful from an elk hunt any part of the planning phases through physical fitness through gear learning elk knowledge elk calling and packing out the elk and everything in between so if you head over to elk101.com and use the coupon code east meets west you can save yourself 20 percent off a one-year membership to the online course so tethered tethered has been developing the most ultra lightweight mobile hunting gear available and they're doing that mostly for the saddle hunting community but now even expanding beyond that so tethered is they have a couple different missions and they don't aren't just trying to sell products as much as they're trying to get more people into understanding saddle hunting and teaching them about it so if you head over, head over to tetherednation.com, you can see all of their lightweight mobile hunting products as well as learn more about saddle hunting. So if you, in addition, they have a YouTube channel, which they've been putting up a ton of hunts on, you know, semi-live type hunts um, on that channel. And actually here in, well, next week, Jared Schaefer from Tethered is coming out here to Pennsylvania to film me i'm gonna do a little filming to him we're gonna we're gonna saddle hunt together for the end of october and then the hunt will be up on their youtube channel shortly after so excited for that but head over to tetherednation.com and check that out and there's one other thing i did want to to mention so if you've been following along with me for long enough you know that i like to use mountain ops products and so Mountain Ops supplements, they're doing they're doing their giant Opstober program this month. So all through October, you can win tons of different prizes that they have. I mean, just anything from small to, to large, and they, they have so many different things there and a bunch of deals going on throughout the entire month. So if you head to mountainops.com and if you use the coupon code BOWFREESHIP, that's B-E-A-U-F-R-E-E-S-H-I-P, then you can get free shipping on any order there. And I also have the link over on uh, my website to access it. Helps me out by using any of the, the links that I have available there over at eastmeetswesthunt.com. Okay, so as far as news updates go this week, I just late last week, I'm talking, I think Friday, I released 
I got some more Mountain Bucks Blaze Orange hats in. So I ordered a bunch more in to sell for the season. Well, I only did one post on my Instagram stories and literally sold all of them except for I have a couple left. I actually think I have one left right now. Maybe by the time this comes out, it might even be gone, but sold all of them in three days. So I would highly recommend uh, go over, check that out, see if there's any left, if you're interested in it and a whole bunch of other apparel items I got up over on the website. So 3% of that goes back to conservation. So I have different quarterly, um, every quarter I donate to a different conservation group and for Q4 here, which we're in, that will go to the QDMA. So head over and check that out. That's over on my website, eastmeetswesthunt.com slash shop. All right. So up until this point in the season, I have uh, last week I did the Mountain Bucks Q&A podcast and talked a little bit about my season to that point. This past weekend, we had a major cold front come through middle of October I was really looking forward to hunting that, and so I got to hunt Friday evening and Saturday morning, and I ended up on Friday evening, I didn't see anything, um, but Saturday morning, I had seen, uh, there was, I saw a, a nice buck, a nice mature buck come behind me, so the trail that I was hoping they were going to cross on, um, which I had a camera there and had some some nice bucks crossing you know over the last month through there heading out to this this point that uh, i was thinking they're betting on at some point and so they didn't come the direction i was hoping to and i actually as i just started using calls you know i felt like that was the right day to start doing a little bit of grunting so i did a um a blind grunt and actually heard a grunt back and so it was this buck and I heard him coming, like almost coming in like he was on a string. And then he dropped off the bank behind me and crossed the creek and went around. So what I think went wrong was there was a little opening in front of me. And I think he was at the point where he could see out into that opening from the thick stuff and couldn't see anything. So maybe a decoy would have helped there. But anyways, he circled around trying to catch my wind. And I did... I could just see, it was so thick behind me. I could just see him go to the to the trail that I walked in on. I could hear him about that point, and then I'm guessing he might have caught my scent of my boots there. He didn't run or nothing, but he didn't he didn't come in. So he just walked off and uh, went up the valley some further, and I ended up getting a photo of him on my, on my other trail camera that was on the other side, was which was the spot I was going to hunt that uh, there was a couple double scrapes there and he crossed in front of that so you win some you lose some i ended up seeing three more does that actually went on the same path that he did and i was just you know wrong place at that time but deer were definitely moving my cameras have been showing it uh definitely just hitting the scrapes pretty hard right now so i won't get much time to hunt until jared comes back here next week um, maybe get out Saturday morning a little bit, but just pretty busy right now. And but then once I once I get in the end of October and November, then I'll be hunting quite a bit more, have some time off of work, and go from there. So this episode of the podcast is with Brett Joy, who's coming out of New Hampshire, and Brett has been hunting 
whitetails in the northeastern Appalachian region and all over the United States with a ton of success. And so Brett and I get to talk about some different some different topics, you know, a few of them just to kind of list them off, getting away from hunting pressure, narrowing down some large tracts of land, hunting timber cuts, trail camera strategy, wading out rut funnels, hunting the weather, and, and some more. And what's interesting about this one, so we're talking specifically about New Hampshire in that north, you know, northern Appalachian region, but I mean, it's really very, very, very similar to here in Pennsylvania, and our tactics are literally a lot of them are, are very similar. So you hear a lot of information here, no matter if you're in PA, maybe Virginia, New York, that applies even New Hampshire. And I'll tell you what, just talking to him made me want to go up there and hunt some more of the Appalachian region in which I've already had on my mind I want to do. So pretty pumped about that. Uh, so I hope that you enjoy this episode with Brett and and hope that you're having a good hunting season so far. Don't forget to send in any photos um, of your success to me. Love to see them. And yeah, we'll go from there. Have a good week, everyone. All right, we're live. And I'm sitting here just getting ready. You know, as with time of recording this, it's leading up into October here. And I'm talking you know, across the screen here to one of my Northeastern brothers from up north, Brett Joy. What's going on, man? Oh, lots going on. Busy, busy, exciting time of year. Lots going on yeah. across the board, but especially in the Whitetail Woods. Yeah, man. You, uh, You've been pretty busy up to this point too, is it from, from the watching you on social media? Yeah, I've been, um, I've been, well, I always try to stay busy. I hate doing nothing, but, uh, you know, this time is especially busy. I like to try to hunt early season as much as I can. And so I always end up usually starting around the first of September, somewhere traveling. Um, the seasons in the Northeast don't open until mid September or so. So I usually make a trip or two early to try to get a head start mostly because I'm impatient and don't want to wait to hunt <laughs> until like September 15th, which is a pretty early opener. But um, if I can get out even earlier, I, I'll do it. So yeah, I've been been to South Dakota and Kentucky and uh, then been hunting here in New Hampshire the last, well, I guess, week and a half, two weeks. Yeah. No, that's uh, that, that's pretty crazy. And do you, when you go on these travel hunts, do you ever, do you hunt any other species other than whitetails or are you pretty much, you want to hunt whitetails wherever you can? Um, so I haven't really, I had an elk one morning because I, so it's a funny story. I was hunting Montana and I missed the draw and, um, I had to get a, I guess, big game combo. What do they call it? I'm not sure. The, yeah. The but general tag general. I couldn't get a whitetail tag without also buying an elk tag. <laughs> and so opening morning, I actually ended up, we actually just happened to run into a huge herd of elk when we were looking for whitetail. So I hunted elk for the first morning of the season, cause I was on a big whitetail and I didn't want to mess them up hunting them in the morning, uh, you know, for that evening. So I hunted elk for one morning, but other than that, I really haven't, I would, I want to, it's man, I can't peel myself away from whitetails though. I just haven't been able to, I will at some point, I want to hunt elk and mule deer and all that stuff. And I've been, I have a bunch of points out West for elk, mule deer, moose, 
cheap and stuff, but I'm kind of just waiting. But right now I just can't get off the whitetails. I just love them and I'm not going to apologize for it. <laughs> yeah. You, I, I'd have to say by, you know, seeing some of your success, it'd be kind of difficult to, to want to, you know, break away. And it's funny that I, I've been trying to do a little bit of the, the opposite where I've been doing some, you know, more Western, some different big game hunts and I absolutely love it. And I, I'm having trouble breaking away from that, but I want to start, I, I really want to go to North Dakota potentially next year and um, beginning of September there and hunt whitetails. And I want to do some more, you know, travel hunts for, for whitetails. I just, I've been having trouble, you know, again, getting away from the other game I, I want it all and i can't do it <laughs> yeah that's a problem and like that's that's my thing i'm like man i you know i just love to experience and you know uh learn about whitetails in different habitats and landscapes that's what i've really learned to kind of enjoy and appreciate over the past i don't know 10 plus years i would say i've been traveling pretty heavy for them um it's just fascinating to me to see how they adapt and interact with different you know landscapes so um you know i've hunted west i've hunted the midwest a lot i've hunted obviously the northeast i'm not i hate to say this and i don't want to alienate anybody but i'm not particularly interested in the southern southeast type whitetail stuff i don't know why um mostly because i just don't like the heat <laughs> so, yeah. um and i don't like a ton of bugs and i don't know um yeah. You know, snakes and nasty critters. It doesn't sound Spiders. like something that's for me, but I'm sure it could be great, but I'm just not super interested in that. But, you know, I've done that, uh, or sorry, I've done, I have hunted in Florida, but for mostly turkeys, but, uh, um, yeah, Northeast, Midwest, the West, and then Canada. And I really like, enjoy them all. Although I think Canada is slowly creeping to the top of the heap right now. I love hunting North of the border in Alberta. It's just a kind of different, different deal i just something about it just i love it oh man yeah I, I went to alberta one time and it was incredible i it was funny they warned me going into it like you're not going to see many deer you know all this stuff and i'm like are you kidding me i'm <laughs> i'm from pennsylvania and thick timber country we don't see deer very often anyways you know <laughs> yeah um i know and like it's that's what i heard too and i was like yeah okay this is like i can live with this and actually, I think I probably ended up hunting probably the same property you did up there. And I, I saw like 27 whitetails on that property in one evening. So yeah. like I've never seen 27 whitetails in a season in New Hampshire. So uh, it's it's not that. But I would say probably compared to some other places, it's the density isn't, you know, the same. It's a little lower, but it's still much higher than than uh, at least New England. Also. Yeah. Did you did you hunt with Jim Hole up there? Yeah, yeah, I've hunted with Jim a couple times. Oh, I didn't know that. That's yeah, that's yeah. really funny. Yeah, so yeah, we hunted the same areas. Yeah, and I I saw, you know, a decent amount, maybe even fifteen to twenty in a night, and I was like, yeah, this is actually really good. I don't yeah, know what no, to it's say. a it's a special area. I really like it up there. I could I always say that if I can ever swing it, I want to spend like a solid month up there or something like that. But kind of watch the. Uh, the season change and then we go from velvet to, to hard horn and turn into those big Canadian chocolate horn monsters that we all dream of. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you end up getting it done up there in Alberta at all? I nope, I never have. And that's probably another reason why I uh, mm -hmm. want to go back so bad because the harder things are, the more I want to do them. And, um, no, I, I've had, I've been there. I think I've been up, I think three times 
Um, the first year I had a really nice buck, um, at 40 yards and I literally was about to draw on him and the, the wind kicked and he caught my, caught my wind. Um, second year I just had some bad luck. We had some deer in a pattern and, um, the farmer ended up like tilling up the field that they were coming to like the day that I felt like I was like, it was going to happen. Like I'd seen these bucks several nights in a row and the night before I had them within 40, but really no shot. And then of course the night I'm like, oh, everything's perfect. I figured it out. I know what the setup and I show up to the field and it's all just dirt. <laughs> I was like, oh man. So, and then actually last year I hit a big one in the shoulder. Um, so yeah, I've had some, I mean, I've been in them and seen some, I mean, seen some actually literally the biggest deer I've ever seen on the hoof up there, but, uh, just haven't been able to get it done. Um, but more so bad luck or just me not getting it done rather than not having the opportunity or not being in the game. I was in the game every year. So yeah, that's, you complain. That's my, you know, my, I really want to go back in the worst way. It, I had my first day in the stand first hour in the evening after, you know, I'd went through the process with Jim to prove that I was able to climb the tree quietly. You know, I, I had a buck that, that he said that he figured went around 200 inches come within 40 yards of me but he was on the the private land side where i couldn't shoot and then as he came they, the the doe that he was chasing drug him downwind behind me and and uh i i'd never seen a deer like do what he did he stopped behind this tree and literally just whipped his head around and locked right right in on me and i almost dropped the bow out of the tree i was just shaking so bad <laughs> it was inc- it was incredible uh, that's the, the moments though you just you know you live for is yeah stuff like that and but, half the time it doesn't well probably more than half the time it doesn't work out but that's <laughs> but anyways before i get too far into this brett i'd like you to give a, a background on yourself and you talked a little bit about like you know your love for traveling hunt here but tell me a little bit about yourself and you know where you live at and some of the the, the bucks that you're hunting you know locally yep so i'm i live in um new hampshire so in the northeast of new england um is where I grew up. Uh, I kind of, uh, taught myself to hunt, I guess. Uh, I had a couple guys. So my, my family, I don't come from hunting family. I come from, well, I'd say my mother's father and my father, sorry, my mother's parents and my father's parents are both from the city right outside of Boston. So they have, you know, not outdoorsy whatsoever. Uh, my parents moved out of Massachusetts up to New Hampshire to the country. Um, so they had an appreciation obviously for the outdoors or else they wouldn't have left the city. Um, my dad has been big into fly fishing for a long time. So, um, through that and through camping and actually, uh, sled dog racing, we used to have a kennel of Siberian Huskies and race sled dogs. Um, you know, I was introduced to the outdoors and you know, that's what I love. No doubt. Like I, I get, like anxiety when I go in the city and just can't wait to get out. It's like, <laughs> the I'm just like counting the seconds so I can leave the second I enter. So I'm definitely love, love being outside. love the outdoors. Um, and I don't know something about potentially, I guess, bow hunting, you know, captivated me when I was really young and I decided I want to do it. My dad probably was like, where's this coming from? Like, I just want, I mean, I'd wake up on, I think it was like Sunday mornings, ESPN used to have hunting on. I used to watch that. Um, I'd be up at, you know, 6am just like sitting, waiting for the hunting shows to come on and then started hunting kind of on my own and shooting like squirrels and whatever the heck got in the backyard with like a toy bow and a BB gun. And then, um, ended up, you know, getting a real bow and 
just started to hunt deer and turkeys and uh, really taught myself how to do it. I, my dad used to, well, so you're supposed to, you know, this is a while ago, but supposed to hunt with um, a licensed hunter when you're under 16. And my dad would like, let me climb the tree stand and like go a hundred yards away and like take a nap against a log, <laughs> like, you know, and we were probably, I don't know what time it was. It was probably like 2 PM. So it went from like 2 PM to like 3 30 PM and like leave two hours before dark. But I had no idea what, you know, what we're doing and I was having fun and I was out there. So I was happy. And so really because of that, I, it took me a long time to experience any, any sort of success whatsoever. And then even uh, my dad's actual business partner, he was a hunter, or still is a hunter to an extent, but not really a serious one and not very successful. Not because, you know, lack of ability. I just, he didn't really care. just kind of wanted to be out there. So um, I hunted with him, wasn't very successful. So there was probably a period of like, I don't know, I think I shot my first deer in Turkey when I was 16, but I've been hunting for years um, before that, before I had probably even saw an animal really, because it's, you know, it's tough up here to, to see anything. If you see a deer, you're, pretty excited even if it's like a fawn um and there's a lot of people that go you know all year maybe without seeing a deer in the type of environment we're in so um I, i'm in the southern part of new hampshire but um i kind of where i live is like kind of getting a little bit out of the out of the southern populated area and a little bit northwest towards some of the big woods in the mountains so kind of on like the edge um and you know, as I get older, I move more and more into north and west into these mountains uh, to try to get away from hunting pressure and people. And I just love the wilderness and the big woods and the high elevations. It's just kind of what my thing is now. I just, I love it. I do hunt some still kind of, I own some property. Um, and I, I, you know, that's still mountains too, I guess. Um, it's just not as big. Um, the road I live on is called mountain road. So that should paint a picture for you. But, um, <laughs> I even consider that like, you know, small woods now, and I'm hunting like, you know, one to 3000 acre continuous blocks of timber there. And I'm like, Oh, that's a small woods, which it really isn't. But, you know, I really like the big, you know, five, 10, 20,000 acre pieces where you can kind of just go and get lost. But, uh, yeah, so that's kind of my background and what I do. Um, I just, I love to travel, obviously. I like to appreciate, you know, everywhere that whitetails live and, and experience all those types of environments, habitats. And um, also I like to film. So that's the other aspect I would been, me and my buddies have been filming our hunts for a long time now. We've been involved with, you know, various different projects. So that's always, always fun and adds another, uh, I guess, aspect to it. Yeah, what's the, what's the recent project you've been doing? Is it is it called Seabox? That's so yeah. That, that was the well. It's actually not the most recent now, but it was. Um, we filmed that last season. Okay, uh, and that was um, that basically followed the story of hunting in New England, and we had you know three different storylines. We had a storyline in suburban Mass, kind of showing. Uh, um, what it's like to hunt in that environment, you know, right outside of Boston on the coast. Um, then we had myself and Ross Roberge. He's my kind of my hunting and filming partner. Uh, and, and, you know, followed us in the mountains of New Hampshire. And then we had a, um, a group of guys in uh, on the main coast and they hunted some, some islands off the coast of Maine and some mainland stuff, big woods. So really kind of a diverse mix of, uh, you know, 
hunting scenarios that you encounter in New England because it is pretty diverse. It's a small region of the country, but there's a lot going on as far as whitetails and how you can hunt them. So that was, uh, we did that one for, for Realtree. Um, we're pretty proud of it. Uh, we think we did a pretty good job of, you know, telling the story of the New England hunter, showing the culture and the tradition and some of the animals that, you know, we have to hunt here. So that was, that was good this year. Um, we're not doing that exactly well we're not doing sea bucks again but we're gonna be producing content uh semi-live um most of us come from a semi-live background anyway for producing content um uh, the main producer john lewis who kind of owns the company that we're doing this under cold front creative he was uh worked for bill winky at midwest whitetail and you know cut his teeth learning to edit and produce semi-live shows he's done stuff for cabela's and like i said bill winky uh, and Midwest Whitetail and Realtree and uh, a bunch of other companies. So that's what we're doing now. And that's on our uh, YouTube channel, which is Just Hunt Club. So actually my South Dakota hunt is out there. And uh, so is like a Kentucky hunt that I had. Um, and then we got a New Hampshire hunt coming, I think, the end of the week or Monday. So lots of fresh, you know, up-to-date content coming out there. So that's the latest thing that we're doing. Nice. I'll have to check those out. I, I did watch um, some of the, the Seabucks episodes there. And um, I, I I think it was a really cool series there. So I'd highly recommend anybody checking that out along with, you know, Brett's YouTube channel there. I, I'm definitely going to be tuning in to check out some of that stuff. It's, it's funny as, you know, someone that, like you with you know creating content and stuff i don't consume as much uh so like when i do find some good ones there i like to i like to be able to check them out when i can yeah well it's tough for me too because i just don't have a lot of time so I, there's so many things i want to see and watch and it's like man i just don't have time and it gets away from you so you're kind of focused on what you're doing and trying to get your stuff done and it's tough to watch everybody else's, unfortunately, even though you'd like to. So I can relate to that. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. And so to to step back a little bit, and I, I would let I have to say, unfortunately, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, that I've never been in, I guess, the true New England before. And that's been on, I have it written down, even just, even for non-hunting reasons, just to take a trip yep. up there. My brother and his wife had went up and driven all the way up to Maine and did a bunch of camping and hiking along the way and just said it was unbelievable. You know, that uh, just, I don't know, it just seems like an area that for me was just always overlooked and it's, I'm not that far away. You know, I, I live in Northern Pennsylvania, right on the New York border, and I've never been further North than New York as far as on this. Yeah. Time. Well, you should come, but, uh, <laughs> but th there's a, probably a reason why a lot of people don't get up here is because it's not on the way to anywhere. You know, we're like tucked up in this Northeast corner, unless you're going to like New Brunswick or Nova, Nova Scotia, like there's, unless you're going to a destination in New England for a purpose, you're not going to be traveling through because like I said, it's not on the way to anywhere. It's like that dead end road, right? Like it's like <laughs> you get past New York city and it's like dead end. Like where <laughs> this, this doesn't go anywhere. So unless you're headed up there, um, yeah, you wouldn't have, wouldn't have come through. So that's, I hear that from a lot of people. It's kind of surprising to me, but then when I think about it, I'm like, oh, that really makes, makes sense unless you're coming up here. But yeah, it's a, it's a really unique area. Um, for sure. Like I said, it is diverse and we have a lot of different landscapes as far as like farmland and, uh, you know, suburban stuff. And then of course, 
mountain stuff and then lowland swamp and then coastal stuff and you know big woods and you know it's kind of like we got it all uh, except for maybe like you know wide open plains or something like that but uh yeah it's a really really pretty region of the country as well um i think growing up here i didn't really appreciate it the way that i should but now i don't know i seem to appreciate every time in the woods i just like stop and i'm up on a mountain look around i'm like man this is awesome this is crazy that this is right out my back door um so especially this time of year with the foliage it's just unbelievable so yeah it's uh yeah it's a really nice area it's got some uh it's unique i'd say it's the landscape the the forest type um very rugged uh you know poor soils it's just a tough place to be to do to be in the outdoors i would say um rocky like there's just not a lot of like i always tell a story with the first time i went to ohio i found a big rub line and uh it was like in november and i was so pumped to go back the next year and i go went back with a group of guys and i wanted to show them this rub line and i went back there and they were like completely like healed up and grown because the soil's so good and the climate's so good and you know the, everything just grows extremely fast there and you could hardly even see the rubs the next year in like the summer and i was like scratching my head if a deer rubs a tree in new england on a mountain it's going to look like a fresh rub for like five years it's just the, the regrowth and the regeneration is so slow because, um, you know, the short, short growing season. And then it's, it's even when there is a growing season, it's relatively cool. And then, you know, the soils are so poor. So it's just a different, different, uh, different environment and landscape, but it's really unique and I enjoy it. It's super, super hard, unforgiving, but I think that's what makes it such a challenge and why I love it so much. Yeah. And, and it, you said about the, the poor soils and, you know, that, that definitely probably has an effect too with the, you know, deer really being able to reach their maximum potential and everything. I mean, I know when I talked to a biologist here before, we were talking about in Pennsylvania across the state and where you're seeing the bigger bucks come from and some different things there. Cause I started hunting some remote area, like really remote areas in North central Pennsylvania. And I was finding, you know, some big rubs and stuff. I'm like, there's gotta be just giants here. And I was getting photos over these old ass deer that were not, yeah. not very big whatsoever. And he's like, well, there's no, there wasn't good undergrowth. The soil wasn't great. It, you know, if there was no mass crops, they didn't have a whole lot of stuff, browse and everything to, is that kind of similar to what you're dealing with? Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like there's pockets of, um, so I focus on areas that are, you know, I try to find areas that have a bit better habitat, um, and better genetics, but no, that's, that's definitely accurate. Most of our mature bucks are, you know, 120 inch five-year-olds, that type of stuff. Yep. Um, and there's some, you know, 90 inch seven-year-olds as well that are running around. Um, but we do get, I, I, you know, we do get some flashes of some pretty good genetics and some big deer. And, uh, I think that all of our deer, you know, people talk about antler score and, you know, I'm actually a scorer for the New Hampshire club. So I'm aware of score and talk about it, but it, I don't think it's a really good way to judge a deer in the Northeast. Um, I mean, if you kill a 135 inch, you know, six year old buck up here, that's, you know, 200 pounds and it's got a huge head on him, and he's been running the mountains for six years and, He's just a stud like that. I don't think 100, you know, you talk about, talk to guys in the Midwest or in Canada or wherever, and 135 is like nothing. And it's like, yeah, I can see that. But up here, it's that's kind of a different animal. And, you know, he may have, you know, 
big mass or something like that. It just might be short time. So, but yeah, we, I, I like to think that any of our bucks when they get old enough will be, you know, a, a trophy, I guess, if you will, or a, you know, a deer that almost anyone would want to shoot. So, um, I kind of look at it like that. Uh, I think that also our deer really don't start to realize their true antler potential till they're six, seven, eight years old, because I think the habitat and is so poor that they're putting so much into, you know, survival that it takes them that much longer. I think, you know, I've hunted all over the place, like I've said, in the Midwest, it seems like deer are pretty much where they're going to be at four or five in the Midwest. But I think really, I mean, I've seen deer grow up until 10 years old around here. Um, you know, deer that were, you know, 130, 140, maybe at five and they're 160, 170 at eight, nine, 10. So they'll continue to grow, which is an interesting thing. Uh, and I've been seeing that more and more, the more I track deer, you know, over the years and really start to pay attention to that stuff. It seems like they're really starting to hit their stride around six or seven years old. Um, actually the buck I killed last year was an eight year old and he grew his biggest rack at eight and a half. So, um, yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing. I think that's one thing that's very different than a lot of the rest, you know, the rest of the country. I think our deer are just, and I'm not saying they don't continue to grow in the Midwest. I know that they do. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying in the Midwest, they might be a hundred and, you know, 50 inches by five. And then they maybe grow 20 inches in the next three to four years. I'm saying our deer 125 inches at four or five, and then they get the 150, 160 by seven, eight, nine, potentially. So yeah, um, there's just a, they continue to make jumps, you know, it's a slow process, but that's kind of seems like that's how it goes. So to get a truly giant deer on here, it seems like they're always like seven plus. Like every one of these ones that comes out that, you know, your jaw drops and you see the picture of them. It's like, yeah, that deer was, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. That's, that's so incredible that, you know, when they get that old, like it's just, there's, there's, um, there's a deer that I'm hunting still this year. I don't know if he's nine or if he's 10, but I've been, I started running cameras in this area in 2015 and he was either a three or a four year old then. And he just keeps he he grew he got his i think his biggest was 2018 and then he seemed to shrink up a little bit in 2019 his body just looked terrible and this year he's looking a little healthier again and and you know and, and a little bit bigger so it's 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 tough to see but it's just amazing how they can get that old and what so you know where you're hunting i know you were saying you want to get away from people you know a lot or are you do you have much hunting pressure or what's that kind of look like it really depends on where you're at. Um, you can go to certain areas around here and have a ton of hunting pressure and be running to people all day. And then you can go to other areas and not see anybody all, anybody all year. Um, so, you know, there's the type of hunter that likes to hunt pressure deer and figure them out um, and kind of like play off other hunters and figure out, you know, how deer are reacting to pressure. I don't particularly care for that just because I just, when I'm in the woods, I like to be by myself other than like a camera guy. That's just kind of how I enjoy being outside. So I don't want to be around a bunch of other people. So I kind of tend to take the other approach and I'm going to go deeper and higher and further and, um, uh, try to find deer that aren't pressured. Um, so it's, <laughs> I want to, I don't want to say that it's, this may come across wrong, but, uh, the challenge for me is finding these areas where there's no pressure and these deer are, you know, moving naturally and, um, you know, being 
steer and behaving like you want them to. Yeah. That's the, the big challenge. I would say that once you do find that they are moving more naturally in daylight. So you, you know, have a better chance at them. Now, that being said, if you're hunting 10,000 acres of timber, that's still a you know tough proposition to get find that deer moving in daylight. <laughs> just because he's moving doesn't mean he's within two miles of you. Unfortunately, that's just kind of how it goes. But so it's it's a I don't know it it's, can be. I mean, some of the guys that are hunting in the suburban spots around here, k- killing you know two big bucks a year with their bow, and I think that's awesome. But that's just not really what I enjoy doing um, and playing that game and worrying about how close you are to houses and if you have permission and are you supposed to be here and is this other guy stand too close? I just don't like that stuff. It just uh, ruins it for me, I guess. Um, so I, I just tend to, to get away. And so, yeah, most of the areas that I hunt have little to no pressure. Um, you know, some of them do, I, I would say every place I hunt has somebody else hunting in the area, but I try to get in spots where there's nobody. Um, and so, yeah, th- those areas are, are relatively unpressured. I'd say that at least the ones that I hunt, yeah. And so with, with those areas, when you say, you know, you're going in, you know, further and stuff, do you, are you meaning like, you know, say further on, you know, say the dirt roads back in the mountains away from any towns, or are you saying more boots, uh, you know, going in further on the ground or what, what is that? Or does that kind of depend too? It's, it's both actually. So, you know, I always, how I find, and I always approach this when I'm looking at public land, doesn't matter if I'm in New Hampshire or you know, Montana or whatever, but, you know, this isn't anything you haven't heard before, but I try to get away from population centers. So major towns or cities, because those are the areas that are going to have the highest density of people, which means the highest density of hunters. And, um, you know, the, the surrounding areas around it are going to be, especially public land is going to be, you know, saturated with hunters. So I, I try to get away from, from those population centers. And then once I get there, I try to find just big, continuous tracks of, of whitetail habitat um the more rugged the better because you know this is what this is the gauge well when <laughs> when you drive all the way up here and then you take this dirt road and then you hike up this trail and then you you know hike over the top of a mountain and then through a swamp and then like you know two hours in you're like what the hell am i doing <laughs> like, <laughs> what and then i go nope that's that's what i'm I'm looking for that moment because you know that you lost like 99 percent of people at that moment yeah so that's when i know okay this is an area that if i am feeling that way most other people aren't coming coming in that in that in that area at all so that's when i know um i'm probably going to be alone but i'm not always i mean sometimes people get back in there and that's great and i, I you know i have a lot of respect when people put the same effort that I do and, and get back in, um, to some of these areas, but yeah, that's what I'm looking. I'm just looking for stuff that's hard to access. I mean, if it means taking a canoe or a kayak two miles across a lake and then, you know, hiking another mile and a half up a mountain and climbing a couple thousand feet or whatever, um, you know, that may be what it takes to get away from these people, but that's kind of, to me, that's kind of part of the challenge, like yeah. I said, and the enjoyment of doing that rather than, you know, hunting where there's a bunch of other people. So I really, I like to be alone. I like the wilderness. I always have. Um, so if I can be in a stand or doing whatever, tracking a buck and know that there's nobody within at least a mile of me, I'm pretty happy. So that's kind of the goal. 
You, you know, it's funny that, so before we started recording, you and I were talking a little bit about trying to, you know, juggle day jobs and hunting and, you know, especially when you're getting lower on light as the season goes. And mm-hmm. that's what I hate about, I, I have a trouble with hunting after work. Um, I, I, one, I can't get in the right mindset. Like I'm in work mode or hunt mode. It's tough to, to get into it. And then I can't get to my normal spots because I don't have the time and I just right. don't feel right. So like when I'm looking at spots, you know, similar to what you're saying, even smaller towns, if I know that, you know, there's, I assume that there's local hunters there that, you know, I'm trying to find the spots if I'm off, like say for a week during the rut that aren't within or whatever time I'm off, but not within driving distance for someone to go after work, you know, or, you know, someone's got to make a trip out of it to, to do this, you know, and that's, and that's something I kind of seem to look at. And then, you know, then it all depends, like you said, it, it just depends on where you're at as far as how far you need to go in or, or whatever. And that, that kind of suck fest when you're doing that walking in and stuff. I was even thinking that scouting this past weekend, I was at this spot and right now it's still warm here and uh, we do have rattlesnakes here. And I was like going, I was, you know, went across this one mountain and, and down over, and I was trying to traverse through this thick creek bottom to come up the other side. And, and I'm just, you know, bitching up a storm to myself, you know, and I'm like, well, I, I can promise you there's probably not going to be anybody else in here in, in archery season. So that's, uh, exactly. that's one benefit of it. That is one of the big challenges though, is, is finding time to get into these areas because it's not just like we had, you know, discussed before. It's not just a simple, Hey, I'm done with work. I'm going to run out and jump in the stand. It's like, no, like a lot of these areas, it's almost an all day commitment to get in. Like if you're going to go in there, you know, you're, um, you might as well stay all day or, you know, you're at least going to be most of the day, you know? Um, so and even to scout around cameras, that's why I try to run a lot of cell cameras. Cause I just, I mean, to try to get into these spots to check cameras or, you know, run cameras, it's, it's just crazy. So I've went almost entirely to cell cameras in these deep spots. If I can have service, which is always a challenge out here, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's, it, it's, it's the, it's not only the time you need to spend in the woods, it's the time spent getting there is, is also part of it. So you have to try to figure that out and, you know, I, we have a couple other buddies around here that kind of do the same thing as me. And we always say the same thing. It's like, I found the spot, but I don't know how the hell I'm going to like get to it or hunt it. It's like, I don't know. It's just, it's almost like too far. And there's, it seems like that two mile range to me, um, unless you're like going to track a buck, but to, you know, really run cameras or like set up stands or do that, any of that type of stuff and spend any significant time. It seems like if you're much more than two miles in, it becomes almost unattainable to really do what you need to do. So, um, yeah, I, you know, the, I totally the, agree. The longer you can push it though, towards that and still figure out a way, um, you know, is, is good. And then, you know, just try to use everything you can just be efficient with, you know, your travel routes and how you get in and try to find the quickest way and the easiest way and the best way to ascend and descend and uh, all that stuff that always helps too. I'm always trying to figure out the best way to get into these spots quickly and quietly and not make big impacts. Cause every time you, that's another thing I think that is kind of overlooked at some of these areas is those deer literally, I mean, they don't see people ever. So when you go in, um, I don't know, it's almost like in my mind, you just set a bomb off in their bedroom because 
they're just not used to any human intrusion for the most part, like zero. So you really can't get away with a ton. So, you know, you're trying to get in and you want to scout and you want to be in there as much as you can, but at the same time, you want to make it appear to them like you're never in there. So it's, it's a challenge. There's lots to consider. Yeah. And so when you're, when you're, are like going into these spots or kind of choosing them, you know, what, what's kind of your thought process, say, if you're looking at, you know, maps ahead of time and then like the boots on the ground, what's that kind of look like from the home to, to going into what would be your ideal location? Well, obviously we already talked about what I'm looking for as far as area and, you know, just a a spot that is extremely hard to access. But once I get in there or, or identify an area like that, um, I'm looking for, I'd say, really two big things. And one is topography and the other is just um, different habitat types or, you know, uh, really what it comes to around here is forest types. So we have a lot of um, mixed hardwoods. We have a lot of softwoods or conifer as well. Um, So those always make good transition lines between the two. And then we have a lot of cuts, a lot of logging operations. And so I focus on those as as well. Um, So if I can find an area that, you know, is really hard to access, that's up high um, and it's got some good, you know, different habitat types converging and then some topography. That's the other thing. Like some of these areas have, like I was actually in a spot, I think Sunday, that is just unbelievable habitat. It's like 500 acres of like different stages of um, uh, clear cuts. And the, the bedding and the food is unbelievable in there, but like, it's just, there's no, nothing there that really like um, defines deer movement. And it's just, it's a tough place to hunt. Um, so I'm looking for areas that have like a, a focal point and that may be a bench or a saddle or, or, you know, um, a long spine or something like that. Um, so if I can find that, that, that type of topography I'm looking for that's going to allow me to hunt there effectively and then have the habitat to support it and be deep, I can be pretty well, you know, assured that there's going to be, you know, some mature deer in there that they're going to be, you know, at least killable to some degree if I put my time in. Yeah. And so as you're, as you're saying that, you know, with, when you were saying that the spot that you had found, you know, on Sunday there that wasn't fitting, was it more, didn't have much topography or was, what, what did that kind of look like? No, it actually has a ton of topography. It's a mountainside, Okay, <laughs> but, um, it just didn't, um, we have a lot. So like, I think, I don't know exactly where you are, Bo, but I'm pretty familiar with Pennsylvania and then like upstate New York and Ohio and West Virginia. Um, it seems to me like a lot of that topography is pretty predictable in, um, I'd say organized, you know, you have these long main ridges and then these finger ridges off of them. And it's all, you know, kind of pretty, like you'd draw it up if it was perfect. Um, we don't have that. We have a lot of like, I just say it's totally random topography. It's like, you know, a huge mountain and then like, you know, a big swamp next to it and then a series of ridges and then another, it's just, it, when you look at the topography, it's like, what the heck happened here? Like, it just looks like a jumbled mess. So there's no consistency within it. So, um, it's actually a lot harder to find the topography I'm looking for around here, um, compared to like, say, I think Pennsylvania or upstate New York or like West Virginia or Ohio, that stuff is a lot more uniform, I think and the way that it lays out up here is a lot different. And so this particular area was literally a mountainside and it just was just a giant side hill and um, like 500 acres of it and, you know, different uh, stages of clear cut, but nothing, 
they were all these stages of cuts were fairly close to each other. I imagine within five years. So there wasn't any really hard edges uh, um, or transition lines that were going to like funnel or, or that you were going to hang out along. Uh, the Actually, the only edge and the only place I really have a camera there now is a hedge, an edge between mature timber and that 500 acre clear cut. So, and I was actually thinking about this when I was in there. I was like, I can't even hunt this clear, this 500 acres. I'm not going to even be in it. I'm going to be on the edge of it because there's this, it's just pointless to be in there trying to figure out deer movement because it's all great habitat, great cover great food, great bedding. So like what's going to, you know, funnel activity. And it's crazy because I'll run cameras in there even, and I don't get a whole lot of pictures, but like I walk up the logging roads and it's just polluted with deer tracks. And, you know, it's like, there's a ton of deer in here. It's just, it's so random within those areas and there's nothing that really concentrates them uh, the way I like to see it. So um, on those areas, I don't even hunt like the middle of the clear cuts. I hunt like the edges, you know, where those transition lines between mature timber and those, uh, those clear cuts are. So I should say, yeah, I mean, you could probably hunt it, but it's still, it's just a challenging area. It's just kind of a gradual climb on the mountain and no, um, you know, uh, really defined or aggressive topography to uh, the uh, yeah. movement. Yeah. No changes in it there. I, I, I think yeah. I'm following you. So when it, when it comes to like, say, um, I'm going to dive in a little bit of logging cuts. So I, I love logging cuts. And actually when I, I did like a, a survey, few weeks back on Instagram, people asking questions and a lot of how to do with logging cuts. And I, I've heard, you know, a bunch of different input on how guys hunt them. And I don't really think there's really one right or wrong way to do that, but I'm interested in how, you know, what are the, the logging cuts? Like, is there a certain age that you're focusing on? Are you looking at the more of the exterior edges, like you were mentioning? Um, but also any interior stuff, what, what does that kind of look like? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. So, uh, they vary around here for sure. You get all sorts of cuts from, you know, selective cut areas to, you know, breather cuts or shelter cuts, patch cuts, and then some big clear cuts. Um, it seems to me like you need a significant amount of acreage um, in this area to be significant enough. Well, I just said significant twice, but a big <laughs> enough amount of acreage to be significant enough to like change the deer activity and concentrate the deer. So if you have like a five acre cut, um, you know, that's probably not going to be enough to make much of a difference. So a lot of these areas I'm looking at are, you know, hundred or 200 or 300 acres that, you know, they maybe have some, some selective cuts or, and then some clear cuts, but there's a lot of, of early succession growth going on. And I think that's the main thing. Um, like I had mentioned before, our, our regen is very slow compared to the rest of the country, at least in my estimation. So um, we don't see much regen at all the first year. Um, you know, it takes probably a year, three, four, five, before we get any significant um, cover out of them. Really, it's it's past five where you get to a point where the deer are bedding. And it, it's more like five to ten years. That's when you get kind of cover that's above your head. Um, those early cuts though, maybe year two or three, um, those are really ideal food sources. So we might sit over those and near bow season on the edge of them and trying to get deer moving through them or, or relating to them, um, as a food source. But, um, during rifle season or muzzleloader season, we sometimes will sit these cuts because the deer will cut across them or, um, you know, be moving through them. So that, that's kind of how we hunt them. We, and actually, I think probably the biggest 
way that I use them to actually hunt, like we're talking stand location is I use them to funnel deer activity because a lot of times they're not going to go through the middle of those cuts for one, because, you know, years one through five, they're too open. And then, you know, years five through 10, they're too thick. And I don't think the deer are using the interior of those cuts much at all, unless there's no logging roads or, or skid trails going into them. I think if it's, you know, a huge area that's all grown up extremely thick, they're actually just going to stick to the edges. Um, and I, I don't believe really that our deer like, and this isn't, you know, the whole country I'm sure is not like this where there's cuts in the mountains, but I don't think our deer like to bed in those cuts very much at all. Um, I think they like to bed in the darker, more mature timber where they can see a long ways, uh, you know, on the down downhill side and, and get the wind in their favor. That seems to me like they'll bed kind of above those cuts and some of the stuff that, you know, was just not marketable or great timber. It was too rough country to log. That's kind of where I see them bedding. So um, there's a lot to, to digest and unpack when you're talking about these cuts. Um, there's just, there's just so many factors as far as, you know, where they are in the South or North face, what the regen's like, is it woody brows or do you have some forbs and some really, you know, uh, highly palatable and, and nutritious stuff coming up? Um, you know, what stage it's in, uh, um, you know, where they're located in relation to topography. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty diverse, but like, I, I would say that most of my areas have them. So I'm, I'm focusing a lot on those. And if it's not for food sources or, you know, some cover, I think a lot of times they may sit on the edge if it's really thick um, and use that to, you know, at their back as well. But um, yeah, if, if nothing else to funnel deer movement around them, almost like a field would do in the Midwest. Yep. That's kind of like, you know, I always try to make things easier than they are because they can get really complicated when you're looking at big woods and mountains and thousands of acres. And, I, you know, I, I was lucky to hunt the Midwest when I was in my early 20s. And I just kind of related everything back to it. So you can almost look at it like a cornfield, like a big cut, right? So, I mean, they're going to feed in it, but I mean, a lot of times they're not going to be right in the middle of the cornfield. They're going to be around the edges or like any ag field. When they're moving during the daylight, they're going to avoid running through the middle of it. So it's going to kind of pinch deer activity or, or, or whatnot. So that's kind of how I look at them, but I, I, I love them. They're, it's just, you know, they're great for many different things, many different reasons. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes sense. And it's funny what you said about, um, you know, when they start getting that cover that's, you know, overhead height there, the, when you're saying that five to 10 year range, I could tell the little bit difference in the soil, as you mentioned earlier for us. And this is just my interpretation. I'd say the three to eight year range is what I would consider ideal for that in, in where I'm at in Pennsylvania. So it's just, it's interesting to see the comparison there. Yeah, it's super slow. It's I actually have, like I said, a little piece of land here and I actually just had it cut. They just wrapped it up. But my original piece I had was cut in 2014. So it's been six years and just last year and this year, it's finally got to the point where it's like ideal habitat as far as, you know, cover and, and browse. But it, t it took that long to get there and it's kind of a, a slow process and you're like, wanting it to happen fast and you go back at year two and stuff is shin high still. And you're like, Ugh, you know, what the heck? But those are the years when you get that, that new growth that they're most attractive as a food sport source, especially like in the summer. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I can uh, understand that when, so as you know, as you're 
talking about the timber cuts and different vegetation features and the and the different you know types of timber and 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 how that relates to terrain there so what does that look like you you mentioned earlier about using a lot of you know trail cameras to help you in your your scouting so what what are you how are you running these trail cameras to be able to to figure out what you're going to do next as far as when hunting comes around um i could so I guess could you get a little more specific? Yeah, that was a, that was like Finding <laughs> deer because I I really do I could talk for days on every aspect of it. So to find the deer or pattern deer or like summer fall like what do you let's let's what do you want to hear about? Let's focus on the timeline. So th- this podcast is gonna release most likely in about the third week of October. So let's say you're gonna be hunting, you know, leading up into the you know pre rut rut type stage. What what are you doing for trail camera strategy then to say, say you already have, um, you know, you know, there's a couple big bucks in the area, a couple mature bucks worth hunting. What are you doing to try to, to figure that out and figure out what you're going to do from there? I, and again, I know that's a loaded question. That's a, a very broad, but uh, just to give a, a starting point there. Yeah. So, so most of October and especially late October is obviously most, most everybody listening to this probably knows is when whitetails are scraping the most and scrapes are most active. Um, and that's especially true in the big woods and in the mountains where I'm at. So, I mean, I would say that 95% of my cameras are going to be on scrapes, uh, that time of year. Um, I would say that, so I, we run most of our cameras on scrapes almost year round. Um, but well, I don't run actually cameras year round. I run them from probably, well, from July 4th, I always say is the kickoff because I just can't do it year round. It's just so much time and I need a break. Um, (laughs) but I run them from like, you know, early July through January, I'll, I'll say, and they're mostly always on scrapes. Um, the only other thing I do run them on is like pinch points. And that may be like the back edge of a cut where it meets, you know, just transition lines, if you will, but on like a, maybe a main trail or really like a heavily used trail. That's like a rut funnel or something like that. But it seems to me in the big woods, those trails like that, those heavily used rut funnel trails um, that when deer are in what I call like zombie mode, when they're literally like running all day long, like they're not even real animals or just like machines. Those are the trails that you, that I see those mature bucks using then uh, those big trails, but I don't see them using them much else or much you know any other time of the year other than you know like probably from november 7th through early december so those are the only we will run them put these cameras on those type of trails in these big funnels um uh or travel corridors but really that time of year late october i'm really relying on intel from scrapes and so um you know those can be relate uh be located anywhere really but i like scrapes that are you know, on saddles, um, in the mountains or on, you know, transition lines between two types of, of habitat. Uh, maybe it's a swamp and, you know, uh, a softwood stand of timber, um, or, uh, you know, hardwoods and a cut or something like that. So they're, they're going to be located over scrapes for sure. Um, if I can find a primary scrape in one of these locations where the topography is favorable, like that's where I'm probably going to be hunting. Um, and I'm going to run a camera over it to know when, you know, what buck's using it and, you know, Hey, if this buck's frequenting the scrape, I need to be in there on the next cold front in late October with whatever wind. Um, 
but that's kind of what I'm doing there. So I, scrapings, I think is huge in the big woods, um, especially because, you know, some of these deer may not be in the area every day. So when they come through, they're going to check these scrapes because they haven't been there. They might've been on the next mount or, you know, the next mountain over for the last week. So when they come back, they're going to check these scrapes and see what's been going on while they were gone. So they're really a big deal. And if you can find a big primary scrape in like a saddle or something like that, or along a transition where there's a lot of activity, you can really find, you know, that can be a really good place to hunt. And not just late October, I've actually was on a, actually like three or four good deer uh, last weekend or the weekend before, I guess opening weekend of the season, which I think was around September 19th. So I guess a month before this, uh, this comes out, but those bucks were hitting that scrape in, you know, late September in this it's saddle because, you know, it was ideal habitat and they're up there anyway. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I'm definitely going to focus on. It seems like that scraping activity starts to trail off here after the first week in November. And then we're pretty much hunting those, those travel, uh, those rut funnels or, uh, those main highways, if you, if you will. So that's kind of where we transition. And then I'll even, I actually really don't take much, uh, into consideration from trail camera data after about November 7th. Obviously, if I get a picture that tells me a buck's around or a big buck's, whatever, I'll take that into account. But if I'm not getting the pictures that I hope to get, I don't really worry too much about it because it seems like those bucks will literally just walk right by those scrapes and not even pay any attention to them in mid-November. So uh, I think it's probably the most challenging time to get pictures of, of big ones sometimes is, is that mid-November because they're just on the move and they just don't stop and they're not, you know, nosing around and, and being social with other deer. They're literally, like I said, on zombie mode, just absolutely machines covering large, large swaths of timber and mountains looking for, looking for a hot doe. So um, yeah, that, that's actually in late October, I'd say is probably the time where I get the most out of running trail cameras. And I really, the focal point of the trail camera season, if you will, is that late October timeframe. So I'm almost a hundred percent relying on trail camera data late October through early November. And then, like I said, once after that first week of November comes, then I'm kind of just throwing that to the wind and I'm hunting those travel corridors in an area where I know there's, you know, a deer that I want to kill. Yeah, that, that's, that's, I see similar results from mine. Like it, it, I don't even check my cameras as much, you know, through November's. And again, we talked about before we were recording, but you know, I'm in a tree most of the time then like, and you know, from seems like for me, mid October through the end through Halloween is like the best trail camera data I'm going to get as far as seeing what big deer moving through the areas and then from there absolutely using the intel on you know say scouting you did in the past or whatever to to know kind of where some of those funnel areas are and i'm trying to put myself in the highest opportunity area because you know similar to you um there's there's not a real high deer population so you know it's you might have a few days of not seeing much before uh but you know that doesn't mean a spot isn't good no. Yeah, no, that's like, we talked before the, the podcast, it's the mental game of believing in your spot and that you're in the right spot and uh, kind of sticking with it. It's always a challenge in these areas with low deer densities. Cause you're just not, you know, you're not getting that validation that, Hey, I picked the right spot. Cause I saw, you know, four bucks cruise by today. I didn't see a big one, but I saw the, you know, four, four bucks doing what I you know expected them to do. It's like, you may see, well, I last year actually in, in sea bucks, I hunted for, well, when we filmed Seabucks, I hunted for, I think, seven straight days in the same stand, more or less. I had 
two stands hung on the same trail or two trails that were about a hundred yards apart. So I was hunting them depending on the wind direction, but I hunted that spot for uh, seven straight days. And I think I saw three bucks in seven days and that's dark to dark, you know, 11 hour sits. So that's kind of gives you an idea. And to be honest with you, seeing three bucks in that time frame is not bad <laughs> yeah. for, for around here. It really isn't. So, um, but it just shows you, I mean, you're going literally like, I think I hit three straight dark to dark days without seeing a deer. And it really gets to, you start to question yourself big time and doubt your, your plan and your decision to sit there in your spot. So um, I think it's important that you believe in your spot um, and have some sort of data or reason or, or logic you know, that, that you can believe in um, other than just like kind of a hunch. Cause when you have a hunch, you don't really know that's, those are the seem to be the spots that you just can't stick it out in because you're not sure. Most of the spots that I'm committing, you know, that large amount of time to, I have, you know, previous years experience or trail camera pictures to prove that this is a really good time to be in the stand. And, you know, there's, two or three bucks that I'd kill it. I, I know that the last two years they came through here during this time period. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of what I'm sitting on. And I think a lot of the, um, I'm not really sitting on any, I would say current trail camera data during that mid to late November uh, timeframe. Um, the only thing reason or way I'm using cameras in that time frame is basically using the data I got from them before to know a buck that I'm interested is in is in that area. And then I'm relying on previous year's data and then also that off-season scouting um, to put me in the right spot to kill them. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Then, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, and I have, I have a few spots I can think of as you're talking about this that, like, I just know are good. You know, spe- like, there's one spot I'm thinking of that I killed a couple bucks out of the same tree. And from November 6th through the 15th, you know, it there. You're not going to see many deer, but it's a it's a great spot. It doesn't look doesn't really give you the sign that jumps out. Yeah, I don't. There's not even any scrapes there. There's not any rubs. It's just the way that everything funnels down through mm-hmm. that. You know, they're they're traveling through there, and you just kind of got to be in the. You just got to be there essentially, and well, and you know what I mean. Absolutely, and and you know a lot of those spots that are like that they they're tougher to identify and take longer to, you know, to prove out because they're not as, they don't jump out at you. Like you said, I have, you know, a couple spots like that as well that you just kind of learn over the years that, Hey, this is for whatever reason, you know, there's definitely a reason it's not, it's not random. Um, but it may just be a little more subtle and, and harder to determine why they're doing what they're doing. Um, but yeah, it's, those are great spots and spots that, you know, you really ought to spend your time, but, you know, the, the scrape thing is great in late October and early November, but it seems like that just turns off. They don't, it's not like they just, they, you know, neglect them hundred percent. They don't, they still hit them. If they're running by them, you might get like a random one on November, you know, 16th at 2 PM and, you know, a big buck here after hits the scrape, but it's more like he just like, you know, runs by it. It's there. He noses it, hits the branch and just keeps on trucking. It's not like he's going to that scrape. It's like, I was going by that scrape and I stopped for four seconds and checked it out. And then I'm, I'm off. Cause I get to go find a doe. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I agree. And so the, the one, another question that this kind of brings up with, you know, as you were talking about these rough funnel areas, 
do you have like any sort of, are you focusing towards, you know, the, the tops of the hills or certain elevation? Do you ever hunt bottoms um, or is that all situational? What, what did you kind of think about that? It's, it's definitely situational, but it's mostly do, uh, based on doe groups. Um, and I think that, I think that you're trying to catch bucks in the mountains when they're traveling from doe group to doe group. Um, you know, some of these areas, there may be a whole mountain that's, you know, I don't know, 3000 acres, 4,000 acres. And there may be, you know, two or three doe groups of, you know, a doe and two fawns or two does and something like that on that whole mountain. So knowing where those areas are that, that hold those does and then knowing kind of what's the quickest and easiest route between them, um, is, is a good way of finding those areas. And that may be that there's a big, you know, a group of does or a couple of do, uh, groups of does down in a bottom in a swamp. Um, and then, you know, there's a couple up on the mountain and that's actually the spot that I hunted last year was, was just like that. These bucks are moving between a, b- between a mountain and a big, you know, area of swamp and bottomland where there's a bunch of does. So, you know, it's kind of like they run the swamp route for a couple of days or down in this big area. That's, I don't know, thousands of acres. And then they're going to, okay, well, I'm going to go up on the mountains now and run the spines up high. And so they'd run, you know, up this particular area to head up the mountain. And that's where they'd come off it and go up it. So, um, yeah, we hunt both. Excuse me just for a sec. <coughs> um, must have COVID. Um, <laughs> um, so, so yeah, no, uh, I, we'll hunt, hunt them all, really. It just depends on the – it's situational and it depends – uh, you know, on the doe groups and what you see the previous years, it seems like to me, like those bucks really like to hang up high and run those higher routes, like, uh, earlier in the rut and later in October, like, like kind of almost that same scrape phase. Most of the scrapes that I'm hunting are up high, I would say. Um, and it seems like they start to drop down lower and lower as the season goes on. I would say that makes it, yeah. that's a, really a general generalization, but more or less that seems to be what I see. Yeah. It is so difficult to, you know, as I'm asking these questions on here to answer that because everything is so situational by area, you know, and you could go, you know, 15 miles to another location and they could be using the train completely different, but like, cause you know, I, I don't really have a, a rule of thumb, you know, whether high or low for that, because it's all depending on there's some areas that I hunt that have the swamps in the bottoms, and then you have the, the ridges up higher. And, you know, I've found more luck in that, that, you know, middle November, you know, after the first week in November, you know, in those bottoms, you know, funneling between beaver ponds, you know, stuff like that, because it seems like a lot of times, that's where a lot of the thick vegetation is. And then you'll find those little openings within it and trying to find, you know, and it depends, you know, every year, sometimes those things change depending on, you know, beavers in the area, damming things up. Sometimes it floods different areas and, and, you know, staying on top of that. But I've, I've found a lot of luck in the, in the bottoms at that, uh, in that later time. And again, that's not, you know, a rule of thumb across the board, but in some of the areas I hunt, that seems to be pretty promising. No, that makes perfect sense. I think that, uh, I think that it seems to me like the density of does is always higher in those bottoms along swamps. So we have a lot of swamps as well, beaver ponds and cattail swamps, swale bogs, stuff like that. 
And, um, you know, one of the advantages of hunting those areas uh, during firearm season is you can sit over them and you can see a long ways. And that's one of the only places that you can. You're going to be either on, you know, a young cut, a, uh, a swamp or maybe a power line to shoot more than, you know, 50 yards with a rifle around here. <laughs> yeah. And most of the time it's not even that far. So that is one of the strategies we use during the ride of his rifle season is kind of getting in one of these areas where we can see a long ways um, and maybe cover two different strong movement patterns in you know, either direction. But, um, and, and swamps are great for that. And, you know, I, I, around here, a lot of big bucks die in those, um, those swamps for sure. So, um, yeah, it, it, it seems to me, it's, it's interesting because it seems like they start up high and then, you know, they start to drop down and then there's a period where they're kind of going like really focusing low and then doing some back and forth stuff. And then it seems like late, they almost go back up high. And I don't know if that's like they're going back home or what. And then, but they're not up there for long and it seems like it's sporadic and then they're gone. They, well, I shouldn't say they're not always gone, but a lot of the times the snow pushes them out of there and uh, they're just, you know, some of these areas are completely vacant of deer and, you know, from say January, well, it depends when the snow comes really, it could be late December or even mid December, but um, yeah, some of these areas are vacant of deer. And that's an interesting thing that I found and find, and it's, it's an unknown variable, whether a buck is going to stay up high or not. And it's so weather dependent um, and and it, it varies year to year. So you, you might find, you know, sheds up over 2000 feet if it's a mild winter and there's not much snow cover. And then, you know, the next year there won't be a deer, have, hasn't been a deer up there for anywhere close to any time where we could have shed. Um, so that's an interesting thing. That's, a, I guess, probably one of the only downfalls of hunting up high is like you, you have that come into play. And, you know, we get some pretty significant snowfalls up here. So, you know, if we get two feet dumped on us in late November, pretty good chance, like those deer are going to be down low. Mm. Um, it's just, you know, more favorable habitat for, for wintering, I'd say. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, uh, you know, I'd say you have a, that's a lot different than here. Uh, as far as we don't have like that much of, we, we have some bad weather, but not enough to push them in different elevations. You know, I, I will find sheds to, if we have a hard winter in the bottoms more. Um, but it, it doesn't, it, that doesn't happen till later normally than probably what you're experiencing. Yeah, that's it. And it's, it's kind of funny because like, you know, I'll be doing winter scouting whenever I, you know, whenever through the whole winter and I find an area and I'm like, this is unbelievable. And I'm like, I haven't seen a track in three hours at deer track. Right. But I know that, you know, next, you know, through, you know, mid November, it could be really good the next year. Um, so you got to learn to gauge that. And, uh, if you can fix, so actually the buck ended up killing last year. Um, I was able to figure out kind of where he went when he wasn't up high. And that's how I ended up, I ended up tracking him down in the snow and killing him. But that's how I ended up picking up his track is I knew that we got a bunch of snow, like two feet and most of the deer moved, you know, out of the high ground and and down into the bottoms. And, um, so I kind of anticipated that and, and set a bunch of cameras for him in an area we had got him in the past late season and during the summer, some, and he had moved back into that area and, um, I ended up cutting his track and killing him. But if I didn't have that knowledge of like, you know, knowing where that buck went and kind of predicting or, you know, anticipating him being there, I never would have got that Intel and ended up killing him. So 
Um, the more you can learn about these animals and how they react to their environment, um, the better off you're going to be. And that just sometimes takes experience in the particular area you're hunting. I mean, I can tell you, you know, um, every, all of my experience and what I think, but that doesn't mean that that's going to be everybody's experience. And, you know, every, I like to talk in generalizations because at least it gives you like a plan and a thought process and something to start with. Yep. But after you try to implement that, you're going to have to like, you know, go into situational, uh, <laughs> I guess reactions or a plan that's situational specific to your area in your given conditions. Yeah. And adapt to not, it. There's no one size fit, fits all in the mountains or the big woods. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I'm glad, you know, that makes, uh, to why you make a good guest as far as you can make, you know, educated generalizations, but, you know, are able to say, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta, that's a good starting point, but that's not your end all be all with it. You know? No, there, there's no hard and fast rules. There just isn't. It's just I've been if looking. People for tell them. you there is. They're just I don't know. They're liars or they don't know what they're talking about. Um, it's just you have to learn. And, and the the other thing that's just crazy and throws another variable in all this is every buck is an individual and has his own personality. Um, and I see that. I mean, it's just more and more evident the more I study these animals. It's just everyone is different. Everyone does different stuff during different portions of the year. Some deer are extremely daylight active. Some deer aren't at all. Some deer are aggressive. Some deer aren't. Some deer don't move far at all. Some deer are like, you know, you get them miles apart. Like, what the heck are you doing over here, dude? Like, <laughs> you don't live here. Like, go home. Like, that type of thing. Usually those are the ones that get killed. But, um, uh, yeah, so learning, you know, it's just, just so many layers to it. It's learning not only the the mountains and you know how the deer relate and trying to predict what they'll do in general but then also learning those individual bucks which is another huge challenge and i love that part of it that's really fascinating to me to try to you know pick apart a 10,000 acre mountain range and then find one particular animal and then track him and follow his habits and his tendencies over you know a period of years and then try to put the puzzle pieces together that's that's like the ultimate thing for me and i really really enjoy uh, you know for me anymore it's it's i enjoy learning about them and following them and their life and their habits and their you know their personalities just as much as i do as you know killing them so it's almost kind of sad i'm like man i don't get to see what he would have done next year or what he would have been or what you know if he did the same thing again or you know i've seen some of these bucks do the same thing for three or four years and then all of a sudden they do something totally different and it's like out of left field and you're like, what, you know, leaves you scratching your head. And it's like, you think you got it figured out, but you never really do. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's so true. And and then you're trying to figure out why they made that change after so long. And right. it's a, uh, it's, it's a constant mind game. So to, to kind of transition into the last topic that I want to talk to you about is there's, there's a ton I w- would like to talk to you about, but for the sakes of this podcast, I want to talk to you about weather and how that relates to your hunting. And so at that this time of year with, you know, the late October kind of coming into November here, how much does weather play a role in, in your hunting? Weather always, um, well, for a couple of reasons, but weather always plays a huge role, um, in my hunting. Um, it just, I guess studying the weather and hunting by the weather just plays into my style of hunting and the way that I hunt. Um, you know, I have a full-time job. I have two kids and a third one on the way. 
Um, I own a house and a property. I have a lot of stuff to do other outside of the woods. So I really don't have as much time as I would like to. So I need to try to pick the most ideal times to be in the woods to spend my time there. Um, and I've found over the years that, you know, hunting the weather in particularly cold fronts, um, if nothing else, that's the single biggest factor I think, um, is going to give me the best results. So I'm always trying to hit those weather fronts and pick my, pick my spots depending upon the weather. And that probably rings true until I'd say mid November. And then I'm just, then I'm hunting dates and, you know, historical data and what I've seen, um, you know, over the years. And, and I do, I have, I, kind of put together a kind of mini study on the rut in my particular area. I gathered, I think, Intel from a hundred different trail cameras for a five-year period from four or five different guys that really ran cameras seriously. And I identified a, a, a date range where, you know, it's just like, you got to be in the woods. These deer are up on their feet covering crazy amounts of ground during daylight. Um, and that's that, you know, November 15th to 22nd, 23rd timeframe. Um, but outside of that, I'm really you know, my hunting is weather dependent, um, especially in October. Uh, I won't hunt on a warm day in October. I just, I'll do something else. Um, so I'm, I'm really timing those fronts and, you know, I run a lot of trail cameras and a lot of cell cameras. And I think we talked before the podcast and I know there's been some data out there and some studies done that say that, you know, weather doesn't affect deer movement. And uh, I'm very data and science oriented person, but I think that those studies are flawed in some way. I don't know how I, I didn't do the studies myself, but <laughs> I, I am wholly convinced that weather, you know, dictates deer movement and increases deer movement, uh, especially cold fronts. So that's what I pay attention to. I mean, I see, you know, night and day differences between a warm day and warm night and then a, a night when a front hits, it's, it's like a light switch flip. So, um, I, that's enough for me. I don't, I guess I don't need to <laughs> convince anybody else. And I don't really, I guess, care what other people think if they want to believe what they want to believe that's fine. But for me, I, I am hunting weather and I think it, I'm convinced that it makes a huge impact on, on deer activity. Um, and you know, we, we talked before, in October or any other time during, well, even during the rut. But if I'm hunting a buck that's bedded on his bed or on his uh, belly at, you know, 5 PM and I need him to move, I need him to move a, a significant distance to get a shot at him in daylight. And if it's a 70 degree day in Oct late October, um, he's probably not going to do that and I'm not going to get a shot. So I've just wasted a, a trip into the woods where I could have been taking care of something else at home or at work um, you know, I've impacted my hunting area by going in there again on a, on a day that was probably a low percentage sit. Um, so I try to, to, to time those weather fronts so that I'm sitting in, you know, my best spots on a day that I think the, that has, you know, the best prospect for a deer to move in daylight and to move, not, you know, 75 yards in daylight to move three, four, 500 yards, um, and give me a chance to, to get in front of them rather than trying to hunt on top of a bed because in the mountains, these deer, I mean, I, I, they do have specific beds, but they more have areas that they bed and they have not just one. They have maybe, I don't know how many, I wish I could radio collar one of these deer in this, in, you know, these mountains, but I think that they literally bed in, you know, 20 different spots, areas during a deer season. Um, so 
trying to pick one of those 20 spots in any given day and then get, you know, it's like <laughs> you may pick a, you know, a, a, a ridge that he's betting on, but then how do you know how close to get to him on that ridge? You know, there's a good chance you're going to push too far and bump him or not push far enough and he's not going to get to you in daylight. So it's just really tough, I think, in this country to hunt a specific bed, um, which I know is very effective in other parts of the country. But I just don't think where we're at, that's it's a super effective uh, way of doing it, at least in the, you know, the type of environment that I'm in, in the mountains. So I'm really relying on those weather fronts to get those deer up and moving early and then covering some ground um, in daylight so that I have an opportunity to to encounter one yeah and so with with that being said when you're looking at these weather fronts is there a timing with the weather fronts are you waiting until like say that cold front is there or are you hunting the beginning of it um the the front end of it what what does that look like um probably i'm waiting yeah i mean all of i'd say all of it i'm hunting the front end of it during the front and like the tail end of it um, it seems like, and that's something I don't really think I have dialed at all, uh, as to when <laughs> during that front they're going to move. I find sometimes they move right, like, for example, we have, this, you know, some cooler temperatures coming in right now in rainfall, and my cameras are actually blowing up this evening, And but it was 75 degrees out, um, and I didn't think that they'd be moving until maybe, you know, later tonight or tomorrow, but I was wrong. So that if I had hunted the front end of this front, I would have been in a little bit, you know, would have been a decent sit, I guess. So if I can hunt all of it, that's better. Um, if I had to pick one, I'm picking like the day. So say it's literally, uh, you know, today it's 75 and tomorrow it's going to be a high of 60 or something like that. I'm going to hunt the day with the highest 60 if I can. Um, the other, and I don't hunt, a t I do hunt mornings early season, but I don't hunt a ton of them, but I really like the mornings. Um, when a front's come in and you get that really high pressure morning, it seems like when I always look at, um, you know, the, the barometric pressure actually on weather underground, you can see it, they have a graph yep. and the, you see the temperature line on the graph and it's plummeting. And then the pressure is rising. It looks like they're going to crash into each other. Those mornings right there where they look like they're going to crash are the mornings I really try to identify and, and focus on early season to hunt. Um, it seems like those deer are just on their feet and you almost get like flurries of, you know, rut activity, I guess, or, or rutting behavior. It's not like they're chasing does or breeding does or, you know, running for 10 miles, but they'll be up, you know, at nine o'clock in the morning, checking scrapes or sparring or doing whatever, nosing around. So I like to focus on those mornings. Um, but other than that, it's, it's mostly evenings and, you know, I'm trying to hunt front end during and after that, that front. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. And, and, and I'm in agreement. I love science. I love like looking at, at data and that I just, from experience I, and just everyone else I talk to, it's just like I, cold fronts are, are definitely the ticket. I need to be in the woods. If there's a cold front in middle, late October, I, I need to be in the woods. Yeah, I think that's a safe bet. Um, you know, if you have, you can hunt every day of the season, like yeah. go for it. Like, that's great. I can't do that though. So I have to try to time it. Um, you know, there's something to be said for just being in the woods. The more time you're in the woods, the better chance you have. Um, and if you have a zillion spots to burn, then go for it. But, you know, a lot of times I'm hunting one or two particular bucks. And so being in that bucks area every day is not going to work. 
um, he's going to leave because uh, if he knows you're there every day, he's like, well, I have uh, 7,000 more acres where there's nobody ever. So I'm going over there and I'm going to abandon that area that you're in every day, even if it's an ideal type of area. Um, so managing that is, is a big part of it too. Um, and you know, people say, well, if you bump a buck or pressure a buck, he's not going to leave. And it's like, well, no, he's not going to leave, but not leaving to in where I hunt means he's not going to move seven miles away. <laughs> it yeah. means he's still staying in that maybe, you know, four to five square mile range, but he's just going to avoid, you know, the hundred acres that you're in all the time. So he didn't leave at all. He's just avoiding a little slice of his, of his home range. Um, and that's, and, and, and looking at that big picture is something I think people fail to do a lot. And I've even myself, and the more I experience, I gain, the more I look at, it, I try to look at this stuff, big picture and look at how these deer are, you know, we, I might be hunting and focusing on one focal point of his home range. Right. But that doesn't mean that there's not 10 other ones out there that I'm unaware of and haven't found yet. So, um, that kind of puts things into perspective. You know, I think these bucks literally will be on like three or four different mountains in the course of, you know, a week or two. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've seen it time and time and time and time again, especially during the rut, they'll travel miles and miles and miles. I know some bucks that get shot three, four five, six miles away from, you know, where I have pictures of them and I'm like scratching my head and I'm always like, Oh, he must've shot him in my spot. And then I like kind of hear where the deer got killed. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know what to say about that then. I mean, it's just, is what it is. So, um, looking big picture and really realizing that these deer in the mountains, you know, move so far. It's not to say that they don't have areas they prefer and like to hang out that they definitely do. And if you can find those, you're definitely in the game, but he might not have one of those. And I, I can, you know, I, I've kind of determined that because I run a lot of cameras and when I find an area that I think is one of those focal points, I'll run, I'll saturate it with cameras. I really will. Um, and so, you know, you don't always get a picture of a buck when he's in the area, but when he's in the area and I get pictures of him at five cameras in a night, I can be relatively confident that if he's in that area, I'm going to catch a picture of him at some point when he's there. Um, and when it's like, I have them on five cameras one night and then three cameras the next morning. And then like that next night I have them on two cameras and then I don't have them for a week. To me, that means he's just not in that area that yeah. he's gone and moved to a different area. And then when he's back, you know it. So it's kind of like they have, it's almost like they're like, they're like a train and they're going into different train stations and when they're in this state train station, they're parked and they're doing whatever. And then in, in that particular area, and then they leave the station and they take a track and they go to the next place. The only thing is, is most of the time you only know of one or two of their stations that they're going to, and you don't know of like all the stops that they have. Um, and you, there may be a guy that's hunting, you know, three miles away over a, across a lake or across a mountain range, it's, you know, he's getting his picture at another, another one of those stations. So just keeping that into perspective and trying to realize that I think is very helpful. Um, but you know, if it's a station that's a, in a shady part of town, there's a lot of crime and it's really risky. He just might avoid that going to that spot and, and kind of cut it out of his, his routine. So, um, you got to keep that in mind. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I remember a buck I was hunting and, I specifically cause it was in 2015 and he had hit, I, I figured this out later, but I missed him on the last day of the season, which I believe is November 15th. And 
I checked my cameras and he hit four of my cameras within, I think it was 18 hours. And the furthest one spanned two and a half miles away. And in that amount of time, it covered that ground. And I'm like, he's not the only buck that's has done that. You know what I mean? It's not, no, you know, no that's way. especially, you know, at that time of year. So it's, uh, it's just, oh, I incredible. mean, I, 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 and you know, on some of these bucks, I do kind of figure out, I, you know, I'm just using that analogy of like a train station, but I will find two of their stations, if you will. And it's literally crazy. I'll get pictures of them here. And then like six hours later, they're two, three miles away at the other one. And it's like, Man, it's, and that's the thing you have to keep in mind is that deer that you're hunting may be miles from you, but it does not take him long to get to you. You're not, you're never out of the game and it could happen at any moment. That's what you have to kind of keep in mind. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good pers- uh, perceptive for perspective for that, you know, especially when, um, when you're sitting there questioning your sanity. <laughs> Yeah, well, you just have to realize that you just have to look. It's like a, the scale of things in the mountains is much bigger. You know, you may be in a farm in Iowa or Ohio that's, you know, 100 acres of timber and you didn't, you know, see or get a picture of the deer for two days just because maybe he's on a neighbor that's, you know, like a quarter mile away. Um, that deer is probably always within, you know, a half mile to a mile of you at, you know, at the most. Um, but it's just that scale. You just have to like, you know, it's almost like a 10 exit in the mountains. That's kind of like how it, how it goes. Um, so you just have to look at it that way. And, and if you have identified one of these areas that he's using to either travel or bed or whatever, you're, you're in the game, like, you know, stick with it and, you know, just keep learning about that animal, keep learning about what he does. And, you know, a lot of the bucks, they're individuals, but they'll do a lot of the same stuff year to year. And it seems like those areas that, you know, have a good deer if if uh you know that deer gets killed um there'll be another buck that will come in and take his take his spot and start to you know go through that same area he probably won't do exactly what the previous buck did but he's going to do a lot of the similar stuff um so that's that's a good thing about if you identify these areas in the mountains these kind of focal points as i call them um they're usually good for a long time. I mean, there may be off years where for whatever reason, something changed, the mass crops not there or what, you know, the weather's bad there we get a lot of snow or whatever the reason may be where, you know, that it just doesn't happen in there like it has in the past, but a lot of them will stay good for, you know, year after year after year and continue to produce, you know, deer, good deer and mature deer that are using that for the same reason that their predecessors did because, you know, it has all those factors that they're looking for. Yeah. And, you know, years of trail camera data and just time in the woods is just is definitely on your side to to be able to figure those type areas out. And I truly love that. Love that factor with it. And and definitely think, you know, to be consistently successful in the mountains, you know, paying attention to all those details and and, you know, studying that that data that you have gained from the the work you put in with trail cameras and just time in the woods can be so valuable yeah it, it is it's extremely valuable it you know this year um i it, you know i was hunting a couple of areas that really had a good run the last five years or so, or so of some big deer um and some old deer and last year like well we had in a two-year period i think we lost one two like five of them we killed a couple 
another one was killed by another hunter, you know, one of those, like I said, three, four mile away type deals. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, actually more than, I think there's six bucks and then two of them disappeared and they were really old. And I think they may have died over the winter. Um, but now it's that area is kind of, there's some, there's a couple of good bucks in there. Don't get me wrong. It's mature ones, but, um, it's just not what it was. So I've kind of like shifted my focus out of there and I don't really have a ton of data on some of these new areas that I'm hunting this year. And it's kind of like, I feel like, I don't know, inadequate. I'm like, Oh man, I don't feel like I have that great of a chance. Cause like, I'm just going on basically, you know, my experience in other places and trying to apply it here. But like, I don't know what, I don't know for sure. And I don't feel ultra confident that I'm going to be even kill a deer in any of these places this year, just because I don't know, you know, I, I can apply what I've learned, but that doesn't mean that that's going to, you know, plug into this scenario and just, you know, equal success. So, um, you know, if, if you can spend more, you know, like you said, the more time you can spend, the more you learn, the more, you know, consecutive years of data and experience you can stack in your favor, you know, the more successful you're going to be for sure. Yeah. I, I, like you said, I, I couldn't agree more with that. And as much as I love hunting new areas and I always am scouting new areas and doing stuff, it's, it, I definitely feel more confident in the areas that I have previous data from and, and tend to be more successful in those areas. Yep. Without a doubt. And that's kind of what helps you sit there longer and day after day, if you have that data and you believe in it, that's kind of what I mean by having the the logic to back it up and give you that confidence to sit there because I can tell you this year, if I'm sitting in one of these new spots based on a hunch, like I said, and you know, I, and deer, I know deer in the past and the similar type of landscape have done this. So, you know, I'm trying to predict their movement that way. It's not as concrete and as solid um, as, you know, actual having data from, well, this buck did this last year. So. Yep. I, um, yep. And actually it's funny that we're talking about deer movement. I just, here in my cell camera and I was telling you how, um, you know, that weather dictates movement. And I just got two of the shooters I've been after within a few minutes of each other on these cell cameras. And I haven't had either of them in a week. So (laughs) there's really some correlation there. I'm telling you between those, that weather and, uh, you know, in that that activity <laughs> real-time proof right there <laughs> yeah well it's just i'm always checking these damn things it's pretty cool yeah um, uh. so in new hampshire we actually have to be careful because there's a law that says we can't use trail camera data from the same calendar day to harvest a deer more or less i'm paraphrasing so i have to like log out of all my apps the days that i'm gonna hunt and can't look at any of the pictures or use any of that stuff um so that's kind of a bummer because, well, I understand the law to an extent, but, you know, if I think anybody thinks I'm getting a picture of a deer a mile and a half up a mountain and then going to run up there and kill them, that's not like, that's not going to happen. No, so, but it's more probably, you know, geared toward the hunters that are hunting, you know, they got a camera in their backyard on an apple tree or something like that. And the deer walks out and they run out back and shoot it. But um, anyway, <laughs> I, I do have to be careful. And anybody that's hunting in New Hampshire, just, you know, if it's listening to this, be aware of that law if you're going to use these, but I definitely utilize them big time, but you just have to, you know, make sure you're doing it the right way. Um, so anyway, yeah, they're, they're great. And it's kind of helps to illustrate the correlation between, weather and deer movement, at least for me. Yeah, definitely. 
Well, Brett, I think uh, I think that's a ton of information that we covered here in this episode and definitely going to want to have you back on the dive in and more of the specific details at, at another date. But I guess all I could say now is I'd, I'd good luck to you, you know, this season and, you know, you and I now we talk back and forth from time to time. So I'm excited to, to see what uh, your hunting season kind of turns into. Absolutely. And good luck to you. I actually think I may be headed to PA public at some point, this month i'm not sure when but um and it may be when this comes out but maybe we'll talk a little bit offline about that one but that should be interesting yeah definitely uh, to do but yeah so good luck it's 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 a super super exciting time of year right now it's like everything's about to be you know going down and it's like you know the cameras and the scrapes are blowing up and you know that that time of year we all wait for is just around the corner so um yeah, there's so much excitement, so much anticipation, and I love it. That's you know part of the fun for me is all that excitement and anticipation, and you know wondering what's what's this year going to bring, what's going to happen tomorrow when I sit there next week, or is this buck going to show up, or you know all that stuff. So um, it's an awesome time of year. Yeah, that's that's definitely for sure. So Brett, where can people find uh, some more information? You mentioned your YouTube channel, which is Just Hunt Club, correct? Yep. Just Hunt Club's YouTube channel if you want to see, you know, Northeast-based content. Not to say we don't hunt out of the Northeast. We definitely do. As, you know, I already said I love to travel to hunt, but it's Northeast-based. Um, we have storylines and you know, a lot of the Northeast states, Maine, uh, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, uh, New York, and PA. So if you're a Northeast hunter, I think you'll really enjoy some of the content we'll be bringing you. When we bring it to you semi-live this year, um, whereas, you know, the Seabuck series we did after the fact. So you can check in and follow along. We already have stuff up now um, and there'll be plenty more down the pipe. Um, you can, if you're interested in what I'm doing, but yeah, specifically, you can check me on an Instagram and that's brettjoy 22 is my handle. Pretty simple, B-R-E-T-T-J-O-Y-2-2. So I, I try to keep that updated and I don't know, I document kind of the day-to-day stuff. Um, and a lot of the stuff in, in the video, semi-live video format gets, you know, left out because you can only show so much without running like, you know, hour long episodes every three or four days. So, um, we try to, you know, show the, the highlights or the best parts of it, but you know, the day-to-day is kind of in there and you can see what I'm doing and how I approach it. Um, and I enjoy, you know, it's funny because, you know, I really enjoy what you're doing, Bo, because this is not a lot of information out there about hunting in the Northeast part of the country and then hunting the big woods or the mountains at all. Like there's not much out there at all. So, um, you know, I, I love to talk to guys that are doing the same thing and seeing, even if they're not in the exact same area, how we can, you know, draw similarities between our different situations and, and learn from each other. So, I always like to check out what everybody else is doing that's doing similar stuff and like to share what I'm doing as well. Awesome. Yeah, I, I totally enjoy that myself. And like you guys were talking here, there's so many similarities that you can draw, you know, back and forth between the places you're hunting and the places I'm hunting and the listeners like it. There's, there's so many similarities that can be learned and, you know, adapted to your specific spot. So, Brett, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.